This week I met with two different men. I'd like to tell you about my time with them. One of them I'm going to call the Method Man, the other one the Mulvane Man. Neither one of them are here today, and no one here really knows either of them. So if you try to figure it out, don't. It's going to be an exercise in futility. I want to tell you the story about these two men because they both I met through church planting and they both wanted to help me and help us here at Orchard, but they went about it in very different ways. So the method man, I call him that because he wanted to develop a method to raise up leaders in the local church. And that was really intriguing to me, at least the idea was, because that's something very similar to what we want to do. We believe God's calling us to make disciples who would make disciples, who would make disciples, and so on and so on. And so you can see, or at least you should be able to see, how important developing leadership is in the process of making disciples. Because if you're not a leader, you won't make any future disciples. The other guy, um, the Mulvane man, I call him that because he lived in Mulvane, he wanted to help us, and he actually did help us through building stairs on our building. Without those stairs on the east side of the building that you'll see on the screen, without those stairs we wouldn't meet here right now, at least not legally. Um, but it's not just what he did and what he and his group did that impressed me, but it was how they did it. They were personally interested in me, in us as a church plant, and they prayed for us. They even gave towards the cost of building those stairs. Their labor was free, and they, as a Sunday school class, took up an offering. It wasn't a whole lot, but it just showed how serious they were about investing in us, that they would go above and beyond doing something that I would have never even thought to ask them to do. So both of them were looking to serve the church, but they did it in very different ways. One did it very personally, the Mulvane man. The other did it very impersonally. He wanted to develop a method, not relationships, but just a method of developing future church leaders. So they both happened to give me advice during the course of our conversations. Which one do you think I listened to? Well, of course, the Mulvane man, because he had my ear. I was impressed by his life of faithfulness. The Mulvane man earned influence the long way and the hard way. He did it through personal relationships, a lifetime of investing in a community of people. And I say the long and the hard way because it's always more strenuous to get something done through personal relationships rather than professional relationships. Personal relationship is when you invest yourself and your life into someone else's life to make them successful. A professional relationship, you protect yourself. You enter into an agreement between two parties, like a contract, that prevents you from really getting burned. You might still suffer a little bit of loss, but a contract or the mutual expectations are put in place so that it's clear to both parties, you do this, I'll do that. And if either of us fail to meet the expectation, then the deal's off. It's not personal, it's professional. And I'm not saying that those types of relationships are bad. Don't hear me saying that at all. They have their rightful place in this world. But what I'm getting at is if you look back on your life 
Which kind of relationships have been the most impactful to you? Even if they happened at work, the most influential relationships in every person's life are personal relationships, where you as a person are cared for, your feelings, your thoughts, you are cared about. And that's what Jesus did. He gave himself away. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there are no shortcuts to a life of faithfulness. Kingdom influence takes personal relationship. The Mulvane man had been faithful for years, and we at Orchard got a two-week mission trip where we got to benefit from their faithfulness. We were their little two-week mission trip of building stairs for a new church plant. So while men are looking for better methods, and they always have been, both inside the church and outside, and they will continue to look for better methods, but while men are looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. And today I want us to look at what it looks like to be a better man or a better woman? What does it look like to be a person of faithfulness? How do we do that? How do we become that type of person? Let's read our scripture for today. It's Matthew 28, verses 1 through 17. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, the women did, and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets back to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you, the soldiers, out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. But the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So in this passage, three times we hear this message of go to Galilee. First, it was the angel telling the women, go to Galilee. Then it was the women on their way to on the way to tell the disciples this, and Jesus, uh, they ran into Jesus, and he said, have my disciples go to Galilee, and I'll meet them there. And you, you may not see the third time, because Matthew doesn't explicitly call it out, but the reason that the disciples ended up in Galilee is because the women were faithful, 
to tell the disciples, go to Galilee. And last week in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus, before his death, told his disciples to go to Galilee. And whenever you find repetition like this in the scripture, it's like, whoa, it just keeps coming back up. Whenever you find that, you found a very reliable way to determine what God is saying in his word. And so since repetition is used to drive home a point, I'm going to say that again. Finding repetition is a very reliable way to determine what God is saying in his word. So you can look for that as you read his word. And if this message of go to Galilee is repeated, then what is God saying by it? Well, we have to understand what did Galilee mean? What was Galilee for the first century disciples, for the hearers of Matthew's message? It was not a spectacular place. It was home. It was a place they were really familiar with. It was an ordinary place. Yeah, you, you can look at the Gospels and say, but didn't all those miracles happen there? Yes, but also many, many days of traveling by foot, traveling by boat around the Sea of Galilee happened. And most of their memories were probably centered around the ordinary. That's where all the disciples came from. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry. It's not a destination spot. It wasn't particularly sacred. That was Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was killed, where they had the Passover. That was the sacred spot. This was the ordinary spot. And so what God is saying about Galilee in this passage is, go there. It's an opportunity to obey. It was a command by God through the angel, through Jesus, through the women who weren't even credible witnesses to this resurrection of Jesus. It was an opportunity to trust God by, by doing what he told them to do. And whenever we have an opportunity to obey, we have an opportunity to experience him. So they God said, go to Galilee, and once you go there, you'll see him. You'll see Jesus. So my question for you and the question for us is, what is your Galilee? What is the place that God has told you to go that is an opportunity to obey in the context of your ordinary life? Maybe for some of you, it's Coke Industries. That's where you work. For others, it's school because you're a teacher or you're a student. For others, your Galilee, your place of ordinary life, is often found at home. That's where you spend most of your time. But Galilee is more than a physical location. It can also be your singleness, something that you struggle with, depression, discouragement, loneliness. Do you believe that God can meet you there? Going to Galilee was a matter of obedience to Jesus in the, in the context of their everyday lives. They were called to say yes, the disciples were, and we are called to say yes. No matter the difficulty, no matter the situation, the answer to the question is yes. And that's what obedience means. We say yes to God, whatever the question is, whatever the command is, we say yes. So this one command, the more I thought about it, this one command of go to Galilee, I think it's a pretty good example of what Jesus' training program was for his followers. His method, his program was personal relationship, and personal relationship is built on trust. Everything he asked the disciples to do involved them, his followers, trusting him. And I think that means everything that he's asking us to do involves us trusting him. It's about deliberate development of our relationship with him, just like it was about deliberate development of their relationship with him. And if you think about the gospel accounts and Jesus and his 12 disciples, 
This wasn't the first time that Jesus asked them to do something that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Like when he sent them out on mission to proclaim the good news, and he said, don't take anything with you. How does that work? When we go on mission trips, we need our luggage and everything. But Jesus said, don't take anything with you. That was his command for them. And then he, he warned them to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. Well, everybody followed the teaching of the Pharisees in first century Judaism. They were the experts. But Jesus said, no, you have to trust me and not listen to them. He also told, told them to pass out five small loaves and two fish to a multitude. He had the disciples sit the people down, pass the food out, and pick up the leftovers. All that Jesus did with his disciples, whether it was the feeding of the 5,000 or warning about the Pharisees' teaching, all of it centered around, who are you going to trust? He wasn't just about feeding the 5,000. I mean, he definitely accomplished that result, but he wanted to develop trust between him and his followers. So in this story, he just simply asked his disciples to go and meet him somewhere, even though the last time they saw Jesus, he was condemned to die, and some of them probably saw him on the cross dying. So it required trust for them to go and believe that they would actually meet him there. Trust is the foundation of any healthy relationship. So in what way does your Galilee, your everyday life setting, require you to trust Christ, to obey? About a month ago for me, it meant building those stairs. I just wanted to get that job done. I was interested in the end result, and there was so much else that involves that involved planting the church, so much else I could do that I really didn't want to do something that I wasn't very good at, that I didn't know how to do. But about halfway through our time, I felt a nudge from the Spirit correcting me and saying, no, this is obedience. This is faithfulness. Do the next thing. And once I repented and believed that was true, it was amazing how much my perspective changed and how much I was able to see Christ in my brothers from Mulvane, how much I learned from that experience, not just woodworking, but I learned about myself. So God has placed you where you are right now for a reason, and that reason is to trust him and deepen your relationship. Yes, he wants to use you. We looked, at how, we looked last week at how this gospel account of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and being raised to life motivates us to like live out the Great Commission, but really what he wants to do in using you is change you in that process and to change me in that process. He's doing the same core training with us now as he did with his first 12 disciples, calling them to trust in the midst of ordinary places. Then we experience him. We experience him. There are no shortcuts to personal relationship. And some of you may be thinking, that's just one more thing to add on to my already busy plate. One more thing to add to a full schedule. And if you think that, you might have missed my point. In all of your busyness, what I'm saying and what I see God saying through this text is trust him in your ordinary life. Look for opportunities to obey right where you are. Look for how he's changing you in the midst of where he's placed you. And if you're really too busy to spend time with God, if you legitimately believe that, too busy to listen to him, too busy to spend time with his people, that's idolatry. That's putting something else in God's place. And so repent, believe, and experience the good news. It's possible for you to do that right where you are. So others of you, 
and this might sound outlandish to some who are very busy, but others of you just wish that God would fill your plate up more. You have lots of capacity in your life. You're faithful in your walk with God. You're faithful in spending time with his people, but you still have more time. And uh, what are you going to spend your days with? You have a choice. Even if you don't have a passion for much, you have a choice and your heart will follow your investment. So be very wise about how you choose to spend that extra free time because you won't always have it. We don't know how much we have. And for each one of us here at Orchard, in a few months, this place will begin to feel like Galilee. It'll begin to feel normal, ordinary, dare I say it, even boring perhaps. (laughs) But that's what happens in the context of everyday life. And we are not in this for a feeling. We're not even in this for a particular result. Like some churches start to plant other churches. I'd love to plant other churches if that's what God wants from us. We are in this to be faithful. And faithfulness for us means obeying the Great Commission and doing that through personal relationships. Not programs, but people. God has entrusted people to us to develop and to send out. And so we believe that if God's calling you here, He's calling you to participate in the ministry of the church. The Bible teaches that Every believer is called to commit to a local church and play a vital role in the life and ministry of that church. And so I know this is just the second week. We're so glad you're here and it takes time. It takes different amounts of time for people to get plugged in based on your experience, based on your temperament, personality, all that. So no pressure. This isn't meant to invoke guilt at all, but it is an invitation for you to know, hey, this is how we get plugged in. Not just that I'd put my name down on a piece of paper and sign up for something. That's great if you want to do that. But when you sign up for something, look for opportunities to get to know the other people that you're working with, the other people that you're in group with. We believe God's calling us to have a ministry of personal relationships. Because if you have the Spirit of Christ, if you're Christian, you can be used by God to develop a disciple who would develop another disciple and so on and so on. So the best way, the absolute best way of getting plugged in is getting plugged into a small group. That's where we build relationships with others to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. And it's not easy. It's not always convenient. But I'd like to think most of the time it's fun and all of the time it's worth it. So remember the Mulvane man. He did it the long way and the hard way. Personal relationships. Well, going to Galilee is hard. It was a test of the disciples' faith And it will be a test of our faith. How we respond to the resurrected Christ is always a test of our faith. And some people in this story doubted, and some people, well, actually, most people in this story doubted. (laughs) Doubt by itself is neutral, and doubt creeps in whenever we do something that's hard. So there was a time in my life when I doubted some things about the faith. I doubted the scriptures. How could I know that I could trust this document, and I also doubted the church. How could I know that I can trust the integrity of this institution? I pursued answers for those doubts, and I was better off for it. That's an example of how doubt is neutral. Doubt can be used for good or for bad in our lives. So this passage shows two responses to doubt. Let's look again at it. It says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, 
They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So some, we see, doubted and lied. The chief priests and the elders, they heard the truth, but they were already committed to their way of life, their way of dealing with Jesus, and so they lied about it. They demonstrated their obstinacy, their stubbornness to the truth. But if you're here today and you're not convinced of this story being true, you might be thinking, what if you're the one circulating the false story? Well, let's look at just one piece of this. First of all, I'm really glad you're here. (laughs) Secondly, doubt is neutral. So let's just evaluate the claim based on the story and based on the context of the story. If we put those soldiers on trial, then the first question as a good jury that we should ask of them is, why are you incriminating yourself? Like you being asleep is you failing your job and you failing your job leads to a punishment. Oftentimes, soldiers were punished by death for serious offenses like that. And so if the, story, if the soldiers stuck to their script, they would say something to the effect of, because it's true, we just all happened to fall asleep and failed the job. And then, as the jury, we could ask them, then why are you alive and free right now instead of in prison or dead? And... Honestly, I don't know what the soldiers would say to that. They'd probably be whispering, like, what, were we, what was our, you know, our answer for that supposed to be? They're, they've never produced the body of Jesus. If this story that the soldiers claimed were true, then they should have found the body and presented the evidence. But as it is, this story, this, this story of Jesus raising from the dead... This is what we should take our unbelieving friends to because how you deal with the resurrection is the defining point. Josephus was a non-biased third-party historian from the first century, and he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't a Christian, but he believed that historically Jesus rose from the dead. So this is something that we have to deal with and that if you have doubts, you have to deal with. Just like if you're driving down the road and brake lights come up in front of you, you might wonder, oh, are those really the brake lights or a reflection of the sun? Or you might be like, I don't think I have to answer that question right now. Uh, I'm just going to keep going. Well, if you do, you know there's going to be a consequence. If you see the brake lights, you need to deal with it. You need to answer the question. God is not afraid of questions about the faith. You won't be the first time or the first one who brought him your doubts, and he is able and willing to answer them. And if you've never gotten an answer, even though you've asked other Christians, then don't quit asking because none of us are God. Keep going to God and keep going to other believers and see what the best answer really is. So that's one response to doubt, was they were obstinate. They did not believe. And then in verses 16 and 17, we see another response to doubt. You know, we we know that the women were on their way to tell the disciples the chief priests lied and they paid off the soldiers, but... In verse 16, there's a contrast. It says, But the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So whenever you see a contrast in Scripture, you're also getting close. You're honing in 
on God's point in the passage. Some doubted and lied, but others doubted and obeyed. This shows that doubt is not in direct opposition to obedience. Now, it's not the most pleasant obedience. Like, remember the women? They, they were afraid, but yet filled with joy as they went and obeyed. That's pleasant obedience when you trust and obey. But when you doubt and obey, you're still obeying. And the disciples who doubted and obeyed were able to look back at this story years later and be like, man, I'm glad I showed up. I'm glad I was there to see Jesus and to receive his teaching of the Great Commission. I, I doubt that they uh, were disappointed with their choice later on. And it's easy for us to look at that story and be like, guys, how could you see him and still doubt? Some of them still doubted. But haven't we, each one of us, seen his faithfulness in our past and still struggle to believe him, still tr- struggle to trust him with our present and with our future? No matter your situation, doubt easily creeps in when you face difficulty, even when you're in the presence of God himself, just like these disciples were. But when we doubt, we need to remember that we're not alone. We were made for community. So that's another reason that small groups are so important to us here at Orchard. Not only do you get that time together on a weekly basis, but also a couple days later, you can text your small group member and say, hey, thanks for sharing what you did at group. I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Keep pressing on. That's how we become people like the Mulvane man. Ultimately, people like Jesus, faithful people. We become like that as we walk with God, as we walk with other people. Jesus went ahead of his disciples into Galilee. So where he's calling you to go in the midst of your ordinary daily lives is not somewhere new. It's not somewhere where you're the pioneer, you're adventuring into it. He's going ahead of you. That means that he holds the future and he knows what you're going into, whether it's a new church plant, a date, a new community, a move, an uncertain job, uncertain future. The question is, will you obey him in the midst of your everyday life circumstances? Will you commit to obeying him and be driven by that commitment to obedience even when doubt rises up? The key to faithfulness is seeing Jesus and responding to him in worship. That's what this passage is all about. Jesus told his disciples, go to Galilee, be faithful in your everyday life. There is where you'll see him. And whenever you see him, when you experience Christ, it results in worship. Let's pray. The worship team is going to come back up. But before we sing any songs and continue in worship, I want us to worship in silence. It'll be silent prayer. If you have doubts, talk to God about them. He's not surprised. And if you're struggling with daily, ordinary faithfulness, tell God. Ask Him to help you. He can help you because Jesus is going ahead of you into exactly what He's calling you to do. You can experience relationship with Him right there.